Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Okay, um, any questions tonight before we get going with other stuff? Not even going to help me out with a couple of questions, huh? <laughs> See how y'all are? I think we're all brain dead. One question yeah. that's unrelated. In the new books for Sunday School, what book are we starting in first? Um, it, when I send out the the study guide, you'll it's all over the place. You'll you'll go to chapter five of one book, chapter nine of the next book. It's all over the place. Oh, gee. Yeah. yeah so you're you're not reading straight through unless you want to, which would be would be helpful. But um, you only have thirty weeks to get through it. Also. Okay, that's gonna well, be. I I found that one book uh, about youth. Uh, the youth yeah. believe in the truth and stuff. So I hadn't read that before, and uh, so I just started reading it. I thought, you know, I got time, and I found it really uh, interesting and stimulating. Yep. In fact, I I started uh, uh, making some contacts with some of my grandkids that I wouldn't have otherwise, probably. Mm -hmm. It, it's very it's very similar in in content to Ken Ham's uh, two books on uh, on the on the youth leaving the church. You know, already gone, and he's got a sequel to that. I forget what it is. Um, you know, we we always think that that young people grow up in the church, and when they go to secular university, they they leave the church. But most of them are not in church. You know, they might physically be there, but not not realistically there from middle school on. And by and large, it's because of the way many churches treat a lot of what Scripture has to say and don't make it plain and uh, don't make it authoritative. So if it's not going to be authoritative on a lot of things, then how can it be authoritative on on what I'm supposed to do or not supposed to do? And so we we lose people very easily that way. That's why Ken Ham's book already gone. He's saying it's when they get to college, they're already gone. They're they're not leaving. Then we lost them a long time before. We need to start much earlier. Yeah, and, and he he emphasizes the relationship, right? Which was good. Yep. Yeah, I really like the the work that. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace has done on on that stuff, and <clears throat> I think you'll find that this program will have about thirty minutes of uh, of video, and then discussion. Plus, you'll have worksheets um, beforehand to uh, to go through or afterwards. And uh, I think you'll find it's we we will have covered a lot of the material already, but the approach that he uses in this package is uh, is pretty good, and it will. It's designed for individuals to use, but it's well suited to the way we do our Sunday school classes. And I think it will reinforce what we know about how we need to to build the case, whether it's with kids or with our neighbors or our relatives or whatever. Yeah. 
So, and I, and I had to order some more books cause yeah, I, so I don't have some of them. And, uh, I told Bill last night that I've got a set for coming for him and he thanked me. And of course he apologized for not <laughs> being there. Yeah. I looked, I looked at the account to say today to see if they put back the hundred dollars that somebody scammed us for and they did. So. Yeah. Suncoast is really good about that. Okay. No well, other questions. Books. I mean, I could go to the bookstore, but you probably get them cheaper, but I'd like to have several of those books that I was, we were just talking about because I want to give them out to some different people. Yeah. They're uh, um, right now. The cheapest place that I've found is christianbook.com. Um, I think if you went to a local bookstore, they'd be quite expensive. Yeah. For whatever reason, Christian book is cheaper than Amazon, at least right now. Yeah. They're having a big sale. And they, um, Christ Centered has a sign that says they'll match online prices. Really? How do they so, stay in business doing that, Chuck? <clears throat> I don't know. It, it sometimes takes a loss to please a customer. Yeah. But if they only come in and buy the books that they would have ordered from Amazon or Christian book and don't buy any of the trinkets and junk that's on that's three quarters of the store, then then they're taking a big loss. Welcome to business. Yep. Yeah. What What's that called? Lost leader? Lost leader. Yeah. Lost leader. yeah. Okay, then let's let's go on. Um, well, that's interesting. There it is. Wow. Read Numbers 20, 1 through 11. Moses was told to speak to the rock, but instead struck the rock. Despite not doing what God had instructed, water came out. What do we learn about God through this incident? When, when I read it, <clears throat> focusing specifically on what we learn about God, not what Moses did wrong and what else was going on. What do we learn about God through this? And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there, that's his Moses' sister, and was buried there. Now I got the hiccups. Uh, now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. And uh, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for, for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. When Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord, from before the Lord as um, he commanded him, 
And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water uh, for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and had livestock. Okay, what do we learn about God through this incident? I'm not so much concerned about what Moses did right or wrong. What do we learn about God through this? God is faithful even if we are not. Very good. God's faithful That's even if we're not. Like that he's take care of his people despite the failure of leadership. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. took care takes care of his people despite the failure of leadership. What else? I was right. going to say God shows compassion when we're not, you know, and that would be similar to what Chuck, Chuck said. So, yeah, what what is what is the water here? Water would represent, I, I think. I yeah, it, it was something they needed desperately, right? They they were struggling in a situation where they they couldn't really turn back. They were in the in a desert. They they really needed water. And Moses' sin, it was sin. He, he was told to speak to the rock, but he, he uh, struck the rock. Moses' sin didn't prevent God from fulfilling his promise to care for them. So that's kind of what Chuck was saying, that despite the failure of leadership, God still blessed his people or cared for his people. Does you know, it well, say somewhere and the rock is Jesus? Well, no, that, those, are, those are way it preaches. I, I oh, read a couple okay. of commentaries today that said the rock represents Jesus. And I, I, I struggle with symbolism like that um, because I think if you really get in the habit of doing symbolism like that, you can make, make it say whatever you want. It's, I think it's adjacent to allegory and I really struggle with that. Now, is there, is there a salvific message in this? Absolutely. But I don't think we need to see Jesus, and this is probably where I'd get in trouble with Baptist friends. I don't think we need to see Jesus, you know, the guy that died on the cross, not God, but Jesus on every page of Scripture. Because I don't think Jesus is, is on every page of Scripture in, a, in an overt way. Everything that's happening in Scripture is because of Jesus and through Jesus but I don't think we need to see a picture of Jesus on every page. I'd and, say uh, God doesn't have to or not necessarily react to all of our actions. Yeah, very good. He, does, he, he, he doesn't have to react to what, we, uh, to what we do or say. You know, one of the things that I'm, that I'm struck with here is is he was very angry. God was very angry with the people. But he didn't take their anger out on them to the point where they were going to die. See, he, he could have just not given them water. Okay, Moses, you hit the rock. I told you to, to speak to the rock. Uh, and so I'm just not going to give them water. You guys can just suffer. But he cared enough for them. Huh, Linda went away. I wondered. I... There. Linda's back. Hmm? <laughs> where did where did you go? We can't hear. 
Linda, can you hear me? My my computer my computer had kind of locked up there and I had to go out and start over okay. again. Okay. Rather than come down really hard on the people who constantly complained about their situation in the desert, God provided them water. He still cared for them despite their sin. Um, to not give water to Moses striking the rock would have been punishment to the people for his sin. And so he didn't do that. Yeah. Instead, he punished Moses because he told Moses, look, you're not going to get to go into the promised land now. You uh, you didn't do what I told you to do, and you did what I told you not to do, and so you don't get to go there. So God gives them wo uh, water and tells Moses he's not getting into the promised land. Even his anger, in his anger, God was not going to cause his people distress if that distress would not bring them closer to him. So in, in the wilderness, that further distress would have, I think, and I, I think this is probably uh, conjecture on my, I shouldn't say probably, it is conjecture on my part, but the way they reacted to everything, God not giving them water there would have just alienated them even more. Even when he was blessing them, they didn't like it. And so God always knows the right thing to do, the right way to go about it. Um, now, what about Moses? Moses didn't often blatantly violate the, the uh, clear directive of God. You know, Moses was pretty responsive to God's direction. But sometimes he was just blatant about his disregard for what God said. And, and I get the sense that uh, Moses here um, was fairly angry at the people, so angry that he just lashed out. God told him, hey, take your staff with you. And he just lashed out at the rock and, and, and uh, struck the rock rather than, you know, dealing with the, the, uh, the ungrateful people that he was chosen to, to serve. And so he strikes well the rock. What about what Moses says in verse 10? Listen, you rebels, must we strike, right. must we bring water out of this rock for you? So he's kind of putting himself on God's level, saying he had something to do with the water coming out of the rock. Right. And, and, and I think that's part of, of, of why God was angry at Moses. Because, yeah, you know, in, in striking the rock, you can make an argument that he did something physically to the rock to make water come out. But in speaking to the rock, none of us have a voice that, you know, shatters, shatters rock. So water comes out, you know, maybe that high soprano could do it for a glass, but not for a rock. And so really by speaking to the rock, God was saying to Moses, let them see my demonstration of power by demonstrate by striking the rock. Moses took that demonstration of power away. And, and as you say, Ann, he put himself in, in the position of God. So despite Moses' own hubris and failure to do what God told him to do, God still gave water to the Hebrews. God took care of them. Moses failed God, and he was ultimately punished for it. He didn't do what God told him to do, that that wasn't the sin of the people. They had their own sins to deal with, and they would all die in the wilderness. 
but that's completely different in this occasion. God doesn't um, does not share his glory with anyone. And when Moses said we, his glory, God's glory was usurped by Moses. So when what God had told Moses to do was to let them see me working. Don't let them see you working. Let them see me working. Any questions or comments on that uh, that one? Well, just that even though they were sinning and groaning and moaning and complaining, God still took care of them like he right. does us. Right. Yeah, despite their sin. Mm -hmm. Despite their sin, yep. Okay. Read uh, Numbers 27, 12 through 21. What principles do you see in this passage as it relates to Joshua, specifically to Joshua? Then the Lord said to Moses, go up into the mountain of, of Aram, Aram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy as the waters are at the waters before their eyes, these are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, and the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, I thought nuns weren't supposed to have sons, a man in whom the Spirit uh, is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. So uh, <laughs> make him stand before Eliezer the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So what principles do we learn about Joshua or that relate to Joshua, not about Joshua, that relate to Joshua through this text. He's going to be commissioned. Go ahead, Elaine. He's going to be commissioned to be in charge. Yep, that's an observation. And he had the Holy Spirit, which was seldom in the Old Testament. Correct. Again, another observation, but good. We're looking for a principle or principles. Let me give you a little bit of background so it might help you. By this time, Joshua had been uh, um, Moses' um, apprentice for almost 40 years. God told Moses that he was going to die soon, so he needed to complete his training of Joshua. He also needed to authenticate Joshua to the people. There had to be a way for the people to know that Joshua was the new God-appointed leader of the people and that the transition 
was almost complete. I find it fascinating that uh, in, in verse uh, 20, you shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. He didn't get all the authority that Moses had. Moses had much more authority than Joshua did. And I find that fascinating. I don't know what difference it was, but he didn't get it all. I think God reserved some of that for himself and gave some of it to the ruling council um, along with Joshua. Moses almost had, had dictatorial authority. So he didn't get it later after Moses died? He didn't get it, more? It doesn't seem, I don't know, I couldn't find a, a passage that would lead us to believe that Moses gets the rest of, I mean, uh, Joshua gets the rest of it. Okay. And so I, I don't know really what to make of some of your authority, but that's very clearly defined, and it's not a wordplay, it's just very clearly stated, um, some of the authority, that all the congregation of Israel may may obey. It's still authoritative, but I I think maybe, uh, you know, if I really had to dig deep for what the difference would be, I think it's probably has to do with the building of the tabernacle and the ability to go into the into the tent of meeting and approach God. Nobody else had that, <clears throat> and uh, and I don't think Joshua got to 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 do like Moses did. Moses was unique in that way. But Moses also said, if you do this, this shall happen. If you don't do this, I mean, that was very authoritative to say right. that uh, very clearly. Uh, yeah, the, the first principle that I see in this passage is one that I think carries over to the church pretty well. That's the training and development of replacement leaders. In the New Testament, what's what's the most prominent example of that in the New Testament? Jesus and the Jesus and the and the apostles and Paul and Timothy. I think I think the most pronounced is Paul and Timothy, because Timothy's a a young teen, excuse me, a young teenager when he joins the team, and and from all we can tell is early on, you know, Timothy was schlepping the bags for Paul. And he was working his way up until at some point Paul is sending him out to, to represent him at various churches. And then <laughs> those times at those churches was much longer. He would stay two or three years. So by the time Paul's done with his, his ministry and is in prison for the second or third time and going to be executed, that's when finally Paul turns over the the Apostle Paul Evangelistic Association to Timothy. Timothy <laughs> his associate for 20 years by then. Or longer. <clears throat> and so I, I think what we see in that is there is a there's a developmental period of leaders, just like it was for Joshua. He's schlepping bags yeah. for, for 40 years before he he goes and becomes the 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 supreme commander, the the leader. The cross reference I have from MacArthur here goes to Joshua three verse seven. You want to? Joshua, go ahead and read it Joshua. if you got it there. Yeah, I do. 
the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So that's kind of a beginning of the transition, I guess, teaching. Yeah, and that kind of gives you an indication that that uh, mm-hmm. while Moses was still alive there on Mount Nebo, mm-hmm. he was still in control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So Moses trains and tests uh, um, Joshua for, for 40 years. He was then given practical tasks to complete along the way. He leads the, the team of spies going in. 12 go in, 12 come out. 10 are convinced you can't do it, and 2 are convinced you can. But that was Joshua's team. It's a practical example of going out and and doing the work of the ministry. Um, Those tests gave him valuable experience in, uh, in leading. Joshua would be thrown into the most, I think, the most difficult position of any Bible character with the exception of Jesus. You have this, this group of, of youngsters, because remember all the people that were, that were over 20 when they left, uh, left Egypt were now dead. And he had to take this group that had only wandered in the wilderness and somehow been solidified into a fighting force and conquer some of the most ruthless and diabolical fighters in uh, in world history. So Joshua had to lead them into <sighs> being joined together and take a people that they um, they didn't know and didn't know how they would fight. And I think that's one of the most difficult situations that anybody could be in. I think it's. Aside from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think it's the most difficult position of any character in Scripture. I think this illustrates that we're to train our young leaders with all the skills and experience they need to be able to take over all of the tasks. And and here's here's my own confession. I'm not good at it. I've, uh, I've, I've failed multiple times at it. But we're still trying. I know, very trying. Um but it's part of the charge that God gives to the church. Train your new leaders. I think the model that we see given in uh, in the New Testament and certainly given here by Joshua and Moses is train up your new leaders internally and uh, then uh, give them the tools that they need, give them the experience they need, and then they can take over. I, I think that's the model. Uh, um that that churches ought to be following today. I don't think the model of how it was done has been done for the last 120 years in the United States is exactly the right way. I think sending guys off to school and bringing them back is not necessarily healthy. Any questions or comments on that? Okay. Read Numbers 30, 1 through 2. What's the principle here? Numbers 30, 1 and 2. Moses spoke to the, to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. 
If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do all according to the pro all that proceeds out of his mouth. Of course, you know, following the, this are the description of some of the vows and uh, the ways that women can get off the hook for the vows and so forth. But just from these two verses, what's the principle? Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Exactly right. That's what I wrote on the top of my page here. Hmm. We're we're required to let our yes be yes and our no be no. That means that means we do what we say we're going to do. And what I need to point out here is these vows were voluntary. These were not mandated vows. These were extra and above, and they were ways for people to impress others or God. And I think this tells us that God places a really high regard on our personal integrity. When we make a commitment, we should strive to keep it, whether it's to God or to someone else. And, you know, in our society today, that's not really the way it works. You know, I, today promises are only kept if it's advantageous for the promiser to keep them. Otherwise, it's just a way to placate you. I mean, just just try to have any contractual work done on your on your house sometime, and see how those promises work. Often, it's very difficult. Little credence is, is given to promises made that should never be said of a follower of of Jesus. They need to know that we can always be trusted to do what we're going to what we say we're going to do, and not do what we say we're not going to do. They need to always we need to always be trusted that we speak truth. The truth, not my truth, there's no such thing, <laughs> speak the truth, and that we're always willing to do it. Of course, in love, but we need, as as Elaine said, our yes needs to be yes and our no needs to be no. Our, our no can't, our yes can't be uh, uh, yes unless it's yes. And you have to do whatever you can do to accomplish what you said you were going to do. Everybody's quiet. Okay, read Numbers 33, 50 through 56. How do these instruction from God compare to Israel's performance? So Numbers 33, 50 through 56. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, uh, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a, a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Whether the lot falls, whenever the or wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. Uh, shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of all the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides and you and shall trouble you in the land where you dwell and i will do to you as though i do to them yeah so what did god 
What did God tell them to do? All their idols and drive them out. Yeah, he, he, he first told them to drive out all the inhabitants, right? Get rid of yeah. everybody that's there. This is a place where all means all. It's, it's not drive out all the ones you don't like. It's drive them all out. Then uh, he said, destroy figured stones, metal images, and high places. What are those? Idols. Yeah, religious systems. Yep. Get rid of everything that they have from their religion. Don't allow their, uh, allow their false gods to hang around. Then he said, take possession of the land. That's an active word where it talks about you need to have control of it. You need to have the land in your control. And then finally, he says, settle the land. Settle land means to, the, the, the actual word settle is really sit in. In other words, they're to abide in it. It is to be their home. It is to be their land. The sense here is that by abiding in the land, the land would reflect God's character and not the character of the Canaanite gods. This tells me that God is not simply after our following him, but we're to leave a trail of following him. The people around Israel in the ancient Near East were to see the people of, of Israel and now the land of Israel as being different. And it needed to reflect who God was and not the Canaanite gods. So from that then, let's take it over into into our own world, into the age of the, the church age, and how do we take the principles of this and uh, and make it something that we're to we're to do? Clearly, God is not telling us to drive out everybody from that's not a believer. Because he didn't give us this land. See, he was he was giving that dirt to Israel. He didn't promise the dirt to America. And so he's not telling the church, you go take the land. But the other principles still hold. You need to live there and demonstrate who I am and demonstrate my character and let the world see you as being different. Because we're what? What kind of people are we? Christ followers. Starts with a P and ends with an Ulier. Peculiar. Yeah. We're peculiar people. We're different, right? I've been told that. We're well, peculiar, right? Some of us are more different than others. <laughs> so we're I, supposed to be different. We're supposed to be different. That's right. And that, that's exactly what, what these instructions here are telling them. Get rid of all the all the false people in the land that I'm giving you, okay? That's a different command, not to us. But then destroy all of the, the metal figures or the figured stones and metal images and high places. Don't allow the religious system of the world around you to infiltrate you. God knew that those Israelites weren't good at, at 
segmenting themselves from the rest of the world. So he told him, get rid of that stuff, because if you don't, it's going to hurt you. It's going to cause you to, to uh, not follow very well. And then he said, take possession of the land and settle the land and let people see that you're different than the rest of the world. So for the church, that means we need to get rid of all those other things that distract us from him. That means don't look at the newspaper uh, horoscopes and everything else that could distract you from God. Keep your eyes focused on him and let the world see you as being different. That's that's the, the principle here. Israel was to be different than the world around them, and they were to segment themselves from the world and not allow the world to uh, infiltrate them. So we're not we're we're supposed to not be pragmatic and and emulate the world. In my uh, cohort this morning, we were the three of us were talking, and uh, Joe had mentioned that in a conversation with a church planter that was all about being seeker sensitive, he said, when. When a young woman is is being courted by a man, she dresses up attractively to attract him. And that's what the church is doing in seeker-sensitive situations. What's the problem with that? Or the problem with that, let me just answer the question. The problem with that is we're already we're already married, we're already engaged to Jesus. Right? So we shouldn't be making ourselves attractive to the world. We're already we're already betrothed to Jesus. We shouldn't be making ourselves attractive to the world because it doesn't work anyway. Because that's not how how Christians are are born. But this I think this passage illustrates that we're to to be different. We're not to be world light with gospel music. We're to be followers of Jesus that look different. Okay, I'll get off my hobby horse. Okay, but but can I come back to something I have been struggling with, especially being in Australia and New Zealand, because it was constantly said, and on every flight it was said, that we are so sorry we took the land away from the Aborigines. We are so sorry that we take, took it away from the Maori and that they acknowledged the leaders past, present, and emerging. So my question is, have people stolen the land from other people or not? Well, I, I don't know that that answer is, uh, that, that that question can be so simply be answered. Because Israel is the only land that really was given to a nation. Correct. Germany wasn't given to the Germanian, France wasn't given to the Franken, da, 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 da. Right, right. But that doesn't mean there's not legitimacy in, in the countries and in, the, in the, uh, the boundaries that are set up. Remember, God handles all of that. We, we see that very clearly. Um, in in the description that Daniel gives, 
Um, God, the, the boundaries of the United States are not by accident. The nation of the United States is not by accident. I, I wholeheartedly believe that the writers of the Constitution and the Declaration of, in, of, uh, Declaration of Independence were inspired by God to write what they wrote. I don't put it on the same level as, as Scripture, but they, they wrote a document that, that made no sense in their time period and is, by most historians' um, evaluation, the greatest country process of anyone. And I think God did that on purpose. And, and what was his purpose? I think his purpose was to facilitate the spreading of the gospel around the world, because that was, by and large, the led by the United States. Absolutely. And you can't just categorically say, that we stole the land from the Indians because many of the lands were, were purchased by treaty. How we, how we went about it probably isn't the best. You know, there, there, there's, there's good history of, of our abuse of, of native Americans, but guess what? They abused they us. out here either. Yeah. They abused each other right. and they abused our people. So, right. But they didn't start out here either. No. You know, if if everybody is a is a uh, is a transient to where they live historically, unless you come from somewhere in uh, in uh, northern Iraq, Iran, because that's where civilization began. That's where the Tower of Babel was, and that's where they got pushed out from. Nobody started out living in South America or in Australia or in the United States. Right. There was no population there. Um, mm -hmm. God poofed them there at the Tower of Babel. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how it works any other way that God miraculous, miraculously moved them there because there's just not enough time for, for the, the natural migration to, to occur. And, the the complete dissimilarity of the languages indicates that they're not all from the same origin and and so god miraculously changed language and uh, he did that when he poofed them to various places you know uh, a, a guy was uh, throwing mud on the tower of babel and the next minute he was in south america i i hope there's video of that when we get to heaven. But I, I can't explain it any other way than God doing a miracle like he'd done before. He created ex nihilo. So if he created ex nihilo, he can move pieces of the puzzle around easily. And I think that's what he did. So none of us have title to the land. Guess what? Neither did Israel. Israel never owned the land. That's why the that's why the year of jubilees was so important and so often violated because they didn't own the land. They only got to use the land. They had a renter's agreement. They had a long-term lease, but it was always God's land. God gave them Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. God gave it to them to use, but they didn't own it. So, None of us has claim to the land. 
I don't know. Did that answer the question? Okay. Everybody's going, what was the question? <laughs> did, 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 yeah, did we absorb or steal the land from the original people? But the original people weren't the original people. Right. And in the case of Australia, I think I think it's even more different than it is for the United States because by and large Australia was a penal colony. You know, the majority of the people that got to Australia got there because they were they were in prison. They were put on a rock they couldn't get off of. So, uh, is the land stolen? No. Did did was it always acquired um, through the most cleanest way, probably not. Yeah. But how many how many wars, you know, went on in, throughout the last uh, six thousand years, where boundaries were moved because one tribe wanted to go to war with another tribe. Now we call them countries, yeah. because we want to take back some of the country, you know, Russia and Ukraine, for example. And just one one more thing, since you all told me to bloviate. <laughs> this, this movement going on today where where we need to apologize for the sins of of the white man before us, that's bad, 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 bad theology. And it is very Marxist Marxist and Leninist in origin. And it is a it is an outworking of critical race theory. And uh, um, the sooner we can get critical race theory removed from our legal system and removed from, from the way people think now, the, the, the better it'll be. Because I'm at the heap of the list of the worst possible offender. And with very few exceptions, I don't think I've actually abused anybody. Statute of limitations probably up on a couple of prisoners, so I probably can say that. But you know, I, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm at the top of the list. But according to critical race theory, I'm the worst possible uh, abuser because I'm a white male Christian that was a cop. You can't get any worse than that. Well, you could have that and also be a pastor. Yeah, you know, I, I I've never seen I, clergy as being part of it, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, critical yes. race theory is 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 so Marxist in origin, and the people that espouse it don't even know what they're talking about. Okay, I'm done bloviating. <laughs> You told me to, so it's not my fault. In number 35, we have the count of the cities of, of cities for the Levites and the cities of refuge. What did we learn about God through this chapter? The chapter is all about telling the Levites about the various cities that they'll get, the 40, the 40, 48 cities that they get around the promised land. What does that tell us about God? Ah. Well, he's taking care of his faithful servants. Yes. More. 
Where are the cities of refuge located? In each tribe. All over Israel, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What What's that tell you then, since the cities of refuge and the cities for the Levites, what's that tell you then about the Levites and what God expects? To minister to the people there. Build on that. You're in the right area. Not, not like the not like the 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 Jews when I I was just in that Judas Iscariot comes not repentant but he comes and he feels sorry and instead of helping him to do real penance or repentance they say oh that's none of our problem look how you get how. No, we don't want anything to do with it. And I just thought that was terrible. Their unspiritual attitude. Right. So I would say with the cities of refuge being cities that are, are they the same as some of the cities with the Levites? I can't remember. They yeah, the cities are, of refuge yeah. are, are Levite cities. <laughs> But there's okay. specific, six specific cities of refuge. There's 42 other cities of, of uh, the Levites. Okay. So they would be places where someone who was accused of a capital crime could go and they could be ministered to to try to bring about repentance and reconciliation. And, and protection. And protection. Because in the ancient Near East, the system, you know, they didn't have a lot of cops, right? Any cops. Right. And, and so somebody uh, commits a capital crime or somebody, let's let's change the word there. Uh, somebody dies and uh, it, you're responsible, whether it was an accident or not. The, the avenger of blood has the right then to go after you and to kill you. And so if if you're working out in the uh, in the woods and your axe handle falls off and strikes your the guy next to you and kills him, the Avenger of Blood has the right to kill you. But you didn't do anything wrong, so you have the right to flee to the city of refuge for protection. And there a trial would go on. And by the word of two or three or more witnesses would be the ability to uh, to defend yourself and not be convicted. And the, the the town, the city, the city leaders would be the jury and they would would say whether or not you're you're protected. But I think it's more than just the cities of refuge. Remember, there are 42 cities of the Levites spread all around all throughout Israel. I think that says that that the, the Levites were to be spread throughout all of the tribes. They were to be at home in all of Israel, not clustered up in, in uh, ultimately Jerusalem or where the tabernacle was, but spread out all, all around. God's ensuring that the uh, religious system, God's ensuring that the religious system um, is available to all and that servants are spread around so that all have the ability to have the services of the religious system. Remember, it was the priests that had to to do all the examinations to see if they were ceremonially clean and so forth. 
And of course, there were other Levites that weren't priests. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. And I also see that God cares about the people who serve in his religious activities, that serve him in a in a professional, if I want to use that word, um, way. He provided for them to be in a society and live their lives in, a, in, in and amongst the people. He didn't segregate them. I think this is the anti-monastery passage. I don't. I don't think oh. monasteries are are ever something God has ordained. Lynn and I had the privilege of touring the only monastery in Brethren history in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, at the Ephrata. <laughs> Fascinating place, if you care at all about Brethren history. Uh, we have how to stupid! How stupid! Separate well, yeah. men and women, and they die out. Right, and and wonder why wonder why we're not growing. Yeah, the the fact that they had to sleep on uh, on wooden planks and use a four by four as a pillow that might have something to do with dying out too. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't hardly sit on one of those benches, let alone lay on it with a four by four as a pillow. And as we talked about, God cares about the justice of His people, and so He gave the cities a refuge. God provided a way for the innocent to be protected and for trying of the guilty. So in this one passage, we have God demonstrating his care of his people in, in several different ways. For, for providing the, the religious leaders all around the, all around the people, uh, throughout the entire nation, so that everyone had access directly to what God was talking about. And what God wanted them to do. God was providing for the care of his of his servants, the, the priests and the Levites that, that were busy doing things. Imagine what it was like for the Levites during the wilderness wandering, after they got the tabernacle. The various groups that had to pack up the tent and, and move everything. They also had their own stuff to move. So God cared for them. So I think... Mm -hmm. What we see in, in Numbers 35 is God cares for his people in different ways for different needs, and but always, always provides for them. Okay, I've bloviated enough to get us to 8 o'clock. On the other hand, to get back to, to being unbiblical, even though monasteries are unbiblical just like with Moses and the water. He used the monasteries to preserve scripture and have the word of God written and passed on. Yeah, very, very true. Much of much of the of the historicity of the Old Testament has been protected by what we know from what the Essenes did in uh, in uh, Qumran. and other groups like that but i don't find it i don't find a passage in scripture that gives us the direction to create monasteries okay that's what i know thank you for watching or listening to this teaching on demand from friendship grace brethren church please consider sending us an email at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com 
to let us know how this teaching may have helped you. Please also consider joining us in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church, located at 10251 Metro Parkway, Suite 116, Fort Myers, Florida, just south of the intersection of Metro and Colonial Boulevard. Sunday school begins at 9 and worship service at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church.